very warm welcome to the eighth podcast in our Eunice W. Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's podcast is on the topic of cybersecurity and the future of war. But now more than ever, we believe that careful fact-based work in the humanities and social sciences and the broader perspective that it offers is needed and it can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us find a way forward. And today's podcast is sponsored by the Future Operations Research Group based here at UNSW Canberra. My name is Katja Theodorakis. I'm a PhD scholar here at Haas and I'm joined today by Karine Pompriand and Rhiannon Nielsen. I'm very excited to be able to have this conversation conversation with you. Now, Karen and I are in the studio here together and Rhiannon is joining us today um, from Sydney and she happens to found herself in, in a bit of a construction site. So if there's <laughs> any noise, um, well, please bear with us. But I'm very excited to be able to have this conversation with you today here. I would like to start by acknowledging the Ngunnawar people, the traditional custodians of the land on which Eunice W. Canberra stands. I would also like to pay my respect to the elders both past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are present here today. Now, it's my very great pleasure to have a conversation today with Rhiannon and Karin on anything cybersecurity and how that relates to the future of war, which kind of connects also to the previous episodes uh, I did with Cave. Dave Kilcullen, where we spoke about imagining the future and what we can expect maybe in the future operating environment. And I also had the opportunity to speak about my own research. So today it's a bit of an extension of that. We may be touching on some of the themes um, and develop, developing them a little bit further in terms of imagining the battlefield of the future and how cyber fits into that. Um, but first of all, I'd like to hear more about um, your research and and. and what you're doing. So maybe you want to start by um, introducing yourselves. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Katia, for having us today. Thank you very much, uh, UNSW as well, for organizing this amazing podcast series. So I'm super excited um, to be part of this opportunity. Um, so yeah, my name is Corinne. Um, I'm French Canadian, so you'll be able to hear my accent throughout this episode. Um, and I've been doing um, PhD research on um, US and China relationships in cyberspace, um, more specifically how the fact that via cyber, all countries are now very much interconnected, not only via the infrastructure, but also in terms of trade relationships, supply chains, um, and so on. And so now that impacts uh, future conflicts. So how do you um, actually raise war against an adversary? when you also depend on them financially and economically. And that's the kind of questions that I raise in my research. That's so fascinating. That's, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. This just <laughs> illustrates the complexity that we're faced with. Absolutely. So I think complexity is one of the buzzwords of the cyber yes. world. Um, but yeah, it's all about like, how can you disentangle all these different relationships and different aspects of them? Yeah, that, that's really good. And I love that you brought up buzzword because even cyber itself is such a buzzword mm -hmm. and it ends up um, sometimes meaning nothing or meaning too many things. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to drilling into that. And and even the question of whether maybe are things they're complex, yes, but have they always been complex or is this an unprecedented thing and unprecedented here in, in quotation marks? Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But which also has to do with, I guess, how we look at the future of war. But before we get into that, I'm very curious to hear about your research, Rhiannon. Yeah, thank you so much for having uh, me today on, on the podcast. I'm really excited to be spending time with you both talking about these really interesting questions because we have a lot to uh, unpack. 
Uh, I'm a CNTA PhD candidate here at UNSW Canberra as well. And unlike Kareen, whose research is really focused on the geopolitical aspects of cyber, my PhD research looks at how we can use cyber capabilities as a way of preventing uh, and mitigating mass atrocity crimes. So things like genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, the 20, 20th century was no stranger to a lot of egregious human rights violations. But what I think is unique about the 21st century is this ubiquity and sophistication of cyber capabilities. And there's a lot of research into how perpetrators of these crimes use uh, these platforms. I mean, Katya, a lot of your research touches on that. So my research is looking at how we can use similar cyber capabilities to prevent the perpetration of such crimes. And I then look at the ethical implications of that. So whilst it might be possible, uh, the question of whether we should and how is also mm. an important one. That is so fascinating as well. I'm really excited um, to hear about that and also the ethical aspects of it, because I, I believe that will be a very big part or should be a very big part of the future battlefield. Um, and, and as we're unraveling some of those layers of complexity today. But before we get into this any further, I feel like I also want to... Um, introduce us as members of the uh, Future Operations Research Group and especially the Women in Future Operations Working Group that's part of this platform. And I think that's that's a big part of it as well, that we're looking at things from broader perspectives and rather than just going, oh, there's a women's group and we're trying to have a bit of a networking and a bit of a diversity uh, initiative here. Yeah, so the thing that's um, special about uh, women in future about the women in the future operations working group is at least according to um uh, my co-founders uh, and myself jenna allen and major lindsay freeman that we we didn't want this to be another diversity initiative that's just about inclusion and networking and visibility and highlighting women it was it was meant to be um actually highlighting the bigger issue that in order to be ready for the future, we need different perspective and dif perspectives and different lenses. And for that, um, we can just continue with business as usual where you're hearing the same voices all the time. And um, it's very easy to wear off into cliches when you're describing this. And that's, I think, the interesting thing for us about this was even in trying to find the language to highlight that we want to do something different when the language is not there, and you go like, oh, but if we say it like this, it sounds like it's just another cliche. You know that you're in uncharted territory. And that's why I'm so excited about this and that we're not together here because we want to highlight women just for the sake of it. But well, that, we should, though. Yeah. Well, I but, mean, like, let's highlight women. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's because the, we have the expertise in the room and it's not and we happen absolutely. to be women and that we don't need to make this an absolutely. extra thing. And I think that was sort of what got me mm -hmm. what got me excited about this, that we're having a discussion here amongst experts who also happen to be women. You're absolutely um, right. I guess what I wanted to say about that is that while we are experts that happen to be women and that's what we want to, you know, focus yeah. on. I totally agree. But I also think that, um, you know, women are 50% of the population yeah. and it's okay that, you know, we aim to represent 50% of the research community and especially in areas that are male dominated. Um, and so I think while we don't want it to be solely for the sake of diversity, I think diversity is a legitimate goal <laughs> in terms of representation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, because sometimes you need a quota to make things work. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's, it's just interesting. Yes. I was just going to jump in and say, I mean, it, I, from my perspective, it's not so much about um, the quota angle. It's more from this idea of saying diversity um, for, di for diversity's sake, right? And I think that's a really laudable aim in and of itself. I think diversity should be privileged and per um, pursued precisely because it brings about different perspectives. And I think in a way, by saying that the aim is to get different perspectives and ask you know, different people to be in the room and contribute to the same sort of topics to move away from echo chambers. I mean, that's diversity, right? Like that's the, that's the aim is to get as many different people from different backgrounds with different perspectives in the room so that we don't end up in this same sort of echo chamber where we're all saying the same things over and over again to the same people. Um, so I think it's a really, I think it's a really fantastic initiative from that. Absolutely. Aspect. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad that the way you put this, I feel like we're on the same same page here because it's about, you have to acknowledge that there's a need for diversity, but we don't want the whole conversation to be about that. It's kind of like, yes, diversity is important, but let's get on with the real conversation about the actual expertise. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about substance. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. So, and so um, just on that, talking about the substance, do you want to tell me a bit more about your respective research areas and what you feel is most relevant in the future battlefield or how you actually envision the future battlefield? Um, and that, that could be anything. Um, it doesn't have to directly come out of your research, but just in general, how do you define cybersecurity? There are so many definitions around, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, so vague <laughs> um, uh, and it's hard to pinpoint, you know, one specific um, sub aspect that, you know, we should emphasize more than another one. Um, so I think when we're talking about, you know, cyber in terms of how it affects the future of war, we're already there, you know, like I think we're talking about the future and this podcast is about navigating uncertainty and the future of operations. And and that's very much true and it's going to change. And that's one of the things about technology. It's how quickly it evolves and it changes. And so it it is impossible to really predict how it's going to look like um, in a few years time. But at the same time, it is very much happening right yeah. now. Right. Um, and when I say what's happening right now, we're talking about um, state and non-state actors um, conducting cyber operations, targeting each other. And that's all happening below the threshold of war as well. And so that's also a new aspect. aspect and that's what's unprecedented. It's the fact that it's const it's not happening, you know, in a declaration of war specific conflict um it's not happening in a vacuum, you know, yeah. like it's happening constantly and um, and it's already changing the way um, states conduct their international relations. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've really started to see, in, at least in maybe the last year or so, is moving away from precisely what Kareem was just touching on, this sort of siloing of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, we sort of talk about war and we have this conception of what war looks like and then cyber is sort of tacked on the end as this separate silo. But really, I think the conversations that we're having, having right now is to say, actually, no, this is incredibly integrated. And the conduct of war and the future of war, as we know it, is predicated on cyberspace. And cyberspace is that theme that runs through all of the other domains of war. Um, and a lot of people don't like talking about cyberspace as a, as a domain. I mean, obviously, it's been regarded as such by at least the, the NATO Warsaw Summit and here in Australia as well, whether it's the fourth or fifth, depending on whether you recognize <laughs> space is separate. Um, but it really is. I, I think, you know, that sort of 
unifying theme across how we are going to understand war in the future. Yeah, and real world, real world case studies have already showed that, you know, Saba is just going to be probably one of the first steps when raging war and when starting um, a conflict. That's what you just start with. And then it just uh, happens to be linked and integrated with all these other aspects and operations. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you want to, before, you know, launching a bomb, if you're able to disable the communication system and if you're able to, you know, pass undetected, That's what you're going to want to do. And that's one of the things that we discussed when Rhiannon and I, we did some research um, at the NATO Cybersecurity Center in Tallinn, Estonia. And that was one of the first things that our military interviewees would mention. Um, yes, you know, targeting critical infrastructure, using cyber operations to target critical infrastructure. That's what our adversaries are going to do, because that's also what we would do. And that's the first thing we would do, because that's the best thing you could do. Yeah. You're basically crippling their ability to react and to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you that you mentioned um, this research pro research project at NATO because I, I want to hear more about this. is such a fascinating case study. Just before we, we get to that, I thought it was worth highlighting what, what I found really um, a key issue in what you just said is that I think our both of you said it, that our narrow conceptualizations, they don't do us any favors sometimes. And when we look at uh, some of the adversaries, especially... Um, as there's a lot of talk about um, great power conflict um, rather than fighting insurgents and non-state actors or a combination of both. I think there, it's really important to acknowledge that um, in China and Russia, they have very, they have very holistic conceptualizations of war and how cyber is integrated into that and that it's been an you know what you're mentioning before about activities below the threshold of, of war. That's how we conceptualize it and that we, we don't call this we don't call this war and it's on this, you know, there's this spectrum of conflict and escalation. But um, if we, if we think of this as a more fluid or integral picture, then it makes a lot more sense why you would put so much emphasis on it. And it helps you, I guess, to jump in as well and say, I think that there's two sides to this. On, on the one hand, I'm really hesitant to say that we are experiencing cyber war or there's warlike activities because I think that what we want to try and avoid at all costs is war. Absolutely. And if there's any sort of perception that the activities that are going on now can be regarded as war, that opens the floodgates for adversaries or other states to engage sort of progressively in more and more nefarious means. On the flip side to that, you know, if you're able to achieve an objective via the least harmful means possible, not only is that a better thing to do, but you have legal and ethical obligations to do so. So if you are able to terminate the communications of um, an air tower, for example, and you can do so either via cyber attack or by bombing it, you have a legal and ethical obligation to do so from my perspective via cyber. So I think in some respects, cyber has also, ha also has the potential to mitigate the amount of harms that are caused by war. Um, it's it's really fascinating to me, sociologically, what that will do to our collective um, understanding of where we're at, and and that I think that's also a theme that comes up in your research, where you went to NATO and 
and actually had the opportunity to to speak to NATO members about the role of NATO military protection of civilian infrastructures or whether they're even of critical infrastructure, whether that even is a civilian structure still or whether we should classify them as, as, as military targets. So could you tell us a bit more about your research from that aspect? Yeah, so just I just wanted to really quickly touch on what you've just said then. And this is something that I think meant that this project for us was really pressing. And that's that the Talon Manual explicitly says that obviously military targets, military infrastructure is a legitimate target, right? Um, critical, uh, civilian critical infrastructure is not a legitimate military target. But if it happens to be dual use, so if military objectives actually use civilian critical infrastructures to achieve their military objective, that becomes a military objective. So therefore, it means that you've got civilian critical infrastructures that are used for both civilian and military purposes that according to international law applicable to cyberspace, and this is just the views of the group of international experts, that's a legitimate target. And so our question was, okay, well, to what extent then is the military engaged in protecting civilian critical infrastructure? Because one of the discourses we hear a lot when we talk about cyber war and cyber security, particularly in military spaces, is the military talking about defending the military. You know, it's the military talking about making sure that we have adequate cyber defenses so that we are able to follow through with our, with our military missions. But ultimately, the purpose of the military is not to protect the military. The purpose of the military is an arm of the state that the state can call upon to ultimately protect the state and, more importantly, the state's civilians. And so what Karina and I did is we went to the NATO CCDCOE and we did a 31 interviews and one focus group with cyber subject matter experts. So we talked to a group of people across 12 different NATO countries about what their individual NATO countries are doing in terms of defending critical infrastructure from specifically state-sponsored cyber attacks. You know, we're not talking the low-hanging fruit. We're not talking about criminal activities. Um, and, of course, that comes into the complexity of attribution and, and these other debates, you know, it opens up a whole can of worms. But we wanted to know, you know, what is the military doing in this space if they see war as they see cyber as a fourth or fifth domain of war? You know, how are they protecting us? Um, and what we found was that ultimately our interviewees would say that it's a very important question, you know, there's a lot of urgency in defending against cyber attacks. This is happening now. Uh, but ultimately, for a range of reasons, the military is not responsible for defending our civilian critical infrastructure against state-sponsored cyber attacks. Uh, and there were three core narratives that we found across our interviewees for why that was the case. The first was the effectiveness narrative. So a lot of the military cyber subject matter experts said that they don't have the resources, they don't have the knowledge. A lot of the cyber knowledge goes to the private sector or to the companies that actually own and operate the critical infrastructure. So there's a bit of a brain drain for that. The second was the environment narrative. So this is when people talk about how cyberspace is this fluid, um, all-encompassing Borderless. Space, borderless space and questions of sovereignty is up for debate, even within NATO members. Some NATO members think that there is a cyber sovereignty, so others don't. So it's very difficult to determine when that's actually been penetrated. Uh, and the final one is authorization. Uh, and that's essentially that the military is not authorized to operate on domestic soil to defend against attacks. And Karina and I find these three arguments 
overwhelmingly unconvincing and, and insufficient. And so we make an argument in the paper to say that, no, this is not, um, this is not acceptable, basically. Right. So do you, do you propose a new model in your paper? Are you allowed to talk about this while it's still under review? Can you fill us in a little bit on what you see as the way forward, even just from your personal thoughts? I think that's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, right. Know? So this is part of the process still <laughs> very much. Absolutely. Um, so Rhiannon, you know, summarized very well our research and the findings. And, you know, basically there's this big question, which is what is the role of the state and what is the role of the military? And like she said, the role of the military is to protect civilians. And when we're talking about critical infrastructure, you know, so banking system, hospitals, electricity, water. We're talking about what we really need as a nation. Absolutely. Right? They're so critical like, national the critical, assets. The critical assets. And so right now in most NATO countries, the responsibility to protect these critical assets relies on the operators and the owners, just like she said. And so we're talking about private companies and civilian, their employees, they're the ones who are meant to be protecting it against the full arsenal of states and state-sponsored um, actors as well. And so we think that there's a problem here. You know, We think that the state and thus the military, by extension, as an arm of the state, should be more involved. The problem though, and that's one of the biggest dilemmas, and that's what we're trying to figure out, is how would that look like? Yeah. How, how do we involve the military without infringing on civil liberties and, you know, without touching on questions such as, oh, well, actually we have to touch these questions, but, you know, without infringing um, on privacy, questions like that, you know, private companies don't want to have the military um, in their networks and we don't want to, you know, enable and promote surveillance and monitoring. And so how do we do it in a collaborative way so that the sole responsibility doesn't um, rely on the shoulders of the private companies, but at the same time that, you know, civil liberties are also protected. Yeah. And, and those are some really, really big questions. And it's, and it's interesting that you've chosen NATO as an example or for your or um, as a case study for your research, because you have, you could say it's the added complexity, but it maybe it's also a, a more useful lens to look at this because NATO is a military and political alliance. So you have the individual member states with their individual national approaches to national security and cyber um, security. And, and I believe that it's 24 of NATO's 29 member states have issued public cyber doctrines that actually deal with military issues. But in each country, you will have a different strategic culture and a different approach. So I'd be really excited to to apply your overall question and look at it in more detail in the individual, in the individual countries. If I'm not mistaken, in Australia's um, 2020 cybersecurity strategy, there's been a bigger emphasis has been put on protect, helping the private sector to protect the assets of critical infrastructure. And I think they... Um, they are seen more as a matter. It's a matter of national security. Um, when you when you're thinking about the vital, um, the vital services that a country needs. So I believe there. Um, I believe there's going to be more training and there's going to be more assistance, and also certain standards that private companies will have to adhere to. 
Yeah, so there are so many aspects in what you just... <laughs> I know, it's such a big topic and we could be talking for hours here. Um, so I think the, the two main things, and then Rhiannon, you can also just jump in, but so, you know, the NATO as a case study, the NATO alliance is, you know, very interesting. And I think you were talking about, um, you know, the complexity of how do you deal with different um, states, um, strategies and approaches um, uh, to cyber and to war in general. And I think that's that's the, one of the things that is not, um, you know, unique to cyber. I mean, in general, when you're talking about an alliance, when you have different allies and different members that have different, um, you know, doctrines, different perspectives as well. It's always been um, difficult to, you know, navigate. How do you, how do you collaborate? Absolutely. I guess right? it's just easier to invoke Article 5 when you've actually got structural damage to, and you know where it's come from when there's planes being flown into towers. Um, it's absolutely. A, that's absolutely. the stealth um, function of cyber, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, that's one of the things that it's also not, so again, not entirely unique to cyber, but maybe um, kind of like um, that has been been more emphasized by cyber. It's this interconnection as well. And so the fact that especially in Europe, you know, critical infrastructure span across countries. Um, and so telecommunication towers, you know, they share bandwidth, they share, you know, um, fiber optics cable, but it's the same thing with electricity um, cables as well and power grids. And so that's also span across Europe. And so you have case studies where, you know, um, a blackout uh, somewhere in Spain could have had repercussions in Germany as well. And so in Saba, it's just been even kind of like broadened um, and, and it's just made it even more so. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's, that's also very interesting about NATO. It's the fact that um, not only do you have to kind of like navigate your differences of opinions, yeah. but also you are at the end of the day, very much interconnected and very much interdependent. And so you have to find this way um, to collaborate and find, um, you know, common ground. Absolutely. And we haven't even mentioned the dimension of the EU and that none of this could actually work. So that's the argument. I think that there needs to be um, the, the cooperation with the EU, especially on technical uh, matters and standards needs to come before there can be a broader political consensus that's needed for that mm -hmm. kind of um, unified action. But we, could, we, we unfortunately, we're, we're almost at the end of our time. So we have to we have to sort of wrap this particular topic up. I just wanted to give Rhiannon a chance to um, to add some thoughts here. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Karine raised, you know, uh, I think the, the key points about the shared critical infrastructure. The only other thing I would say about NATO specifically, and I suppose the general thrust of our concern or, or our, our arguments in our paper is that it's the way that cyberspace is being framed, particularly by NATO, but as, as, other, as well as other countries around the world, you know, cyber is being regarded as a fourth domain of war. And so if there has been this acknowledgement that cyberspace is this domain of war, how is it that the military is involved in protecting that? And what we would often do with our interviewees is, is give this analogy with the physical domain, you know, because they would say, oh, you know, we, we're not expected to protect privately owned civilian critical infrastructure. And Karina and I would say, well, yeah, I suppose the private industry is expected to employ guards, put up CCT cameras, have fences around the property. But if you have an incoming ballistic missile, 
you know, the private company is not expected to have anti-ballistic missile capabilities. The, the Air Force would be called upon by the state to defend that because that is seen as an incursion and it's in this domain of war. And the same questions we raise in terms of cyber. And I think ultimately we have two different choices. Either we say, okay, cyberspace is this urgent pressing threat. Critical infrastructure is being targeted. People are saying that it will be targeted in the space of future operations. How do we have a military that can respond to protecting us, not just themselves to, per- to you know, do military operations, but also us, the civilians? Or we'd be very upfront and say, no, the military is engaged in physical actions only or is engaged in offensive cyber operations that target abroad and anything that is breached within country here from overseas, from sophisticated state-sponsored actors is not the military's bag. And I think what we need in that sense is more transparency. I think civilians should know that the military, that is not the military's responsibility and that we have to look to our protection duties to private industry, essentially. And ultimately, just to add to that, you know, Katia, because we raised um, the Australian 2020 um, National Cyber Security Strategy. And I think um, while it is true that they are trying to be a little bit more explicit um, about the, you know, the sharing of responsibilities between the different actors that are being involved, the biggest problem that I see is that in this particular strategy, but also in most NATO's countries, um, cybersecurity national strategies, is that... Well, it is okay to say that different actors are involved in it, that that's absolutely true, right? Like different actors have different responsibilities. Um, we need to be explicit as to which responsibilities exactly does each actor has, you know? Like when they say cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility. Yeah. Like um, the slip, slop and slap campaign, yeah, right? right? Everyone's the hygiene that everyone needs to do. And then, you know, that means that basically you know, nobody's taking responsibility <laughs> and who's accountable at the end of the day if there's an attack on a civilian critical infrastructure and that they were not able to protect it and they were not able to foresee it and prevent it. Um, you know, there's resilience and there's strategies that companies are putting in place, obviously, and there's standards and there's legislation to help them. But what we're seeing is that it's not enough. Um, and, yeah. and at the end of the day, the private companies don't want to be accountable if you know, there's crippling um, cyber incident that, you know, race to a global national uh, level. Yeah, as, absolutely. Especially coming back to, I think you made this point in the beginning, that when we're looking at um, the the shape or the nature of the future um, battlefield or spectrum of conflict, and then if, in, if we acknowledge that influence will be so much more important than actually conflict over territory, which will also be still a factor um, but that a lot of it will be about symbolic actions that will then give a country more influence then something like that is is really really important because if you can basically paralyze a, a society's vital organs so to speak mm-hmm. it doesn't make the country look very good in your deterrence function and you know your projections of strength and force um they, they have taken a hit so that's really really important well i know we could go for hours i still have so many more questions so i feel like we need to continue this discussion over coffee at some point but <laughs> anytime um, um for the purposes here we do need to wrap it up so let me just come back again to where we started with um, the rationale for why we founded women in future operations um from that angle what are you most excited about for the future of um cyber security 
in that area and and the expertise that and, and the research you've just done? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most exciting things uh, from my perspective is this space that you've created with Women in Future Operations that bring together like-minded people um, and really try to incorporate more women and more women's voices and different perspectives in the space of cybersecurity, you know. Um, and so I think what's really exciting is that the Women in Future Operations group is is trying to lead by example and try to say to other other women, other young women, other older women, anybody who identifies as a woman, like to say, look, like there is a space here for you. And we're really excited to hear your thoughts. And, you know, please don't think that you have to fit a certain stereotype or be a certain person. Um, all views are welcome. And I think we're going to just see more and more of that in cybersecurity going forward. Absolutely. Like she said. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I already said you have my power of attorney. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Rhiannon and Corinne, for, for your time today. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. This was the eighth episode in UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast, and there are more to come. So please join us on the next podcast, the ninth installment, when the topic of Armageddon and Accra, Australian air power in the Middle East, a century will be explored on Navigating Uncertainty. Thank you very much. Thank you, Katia. Thank you, Katia.